You are tuned in to the Alice Cardinelli Entertainment Network here on Blog Talk Radio with your host, the crazy energetic Alice Cardinelli. You can expect the unexpected, and you can expect plenty of craziness. Now, live from Ace Network Studios in Springfield, Mass, is your host, Alex Cardinelli. Of the person 
that all this happened to. And it's without any further ado that I need to introduce none other than NFL football player Dante Rump. Dante, welcome to the Mad Scientist Sports Lab. You're on the air with the Mad Scientist Nick Ficarelli and the apprentice Andrew Gulkoff. How you doing tonight? Hey, how you doing, Nick? I'm doing pretty good right now. Now, you and me have been in contact for the last, I would say, six to nine months, and it's been building to this um, to this episode. And, uh, you know, you and me had, have had some poignant talks, and it's about time that you come out and speak whatever has to be spoken. So I will give you the floor. And then after that, obviously, both me and uh, Andrew will be ha- will have questions for you. But the floor is yours, Dante. Go ahead and let everybody know what's been going on with you lately and why the story needs to come out the way it does. Well, um, just to set the record straight, I know there may have been some people perceiving my story in these interviews the wrong way. I just want to set the record straight that there is no bad blood between me and the Falcons because I would have never tried to camp out in front of their facility, nor the movement would have never been called Rise Up Rump. So basically, huh? now, Now, when you camped out in front of the Falcons, though, it seemed to get some really, a lot of mainstream press. But people took it the wrong way. So, just to enlighten everybody, why you camped out in front of in front of the Falcons, you know, in front of the Falcons camp, and you know, basically, the reasoning behind it. Well, my reason behind it was to to show courage for what I believe in, as well as to inspire and motivate other professional athletes to to never give up on their dreams. I mean, I know sometimes in your career you hit you hit speed bumps and you hit different obstacles, but as long as you keep God and you keep faith in what you're doing and you keep your eye on that vision, you will be able to get over those obstacles and over those speed bumps. So I'm just trying to to basically put myself out there and show that it's okay to you know show a little bit of humility just for what you believe in. So that's that's the reason behind my whole movement and why I camped out, as well as another opportunity to showcase how much I've grown in the past eight months. Now when it comes to when it comes to getting the call from the New York Giants, you know, it, you know, there was a time where you were going through what people called a dark depression. And I want to know what was going through your mind in those eight months while you, you know, while you set up, you know, while you were getting ready to get into this, you know, to, to, to get into the mindset of getting back into the game. Well, um, after being released, you know, from the Falcons, um, 
I had a little bit of bad luck with uh, my my first agent. He basically just went and, and disappeared on me. I tried everything in my will to contact him, social media, call, text message, uh, email, everything, and I, I could not receive a, sp- a response from him. And, you know, as as a rookie, you being released from your first NFL team, you know, you feel like your your dreams were pretty much shot. And it, it caused me to hit reality of the fact that football will not be around forever. And, you know, just I had nobody to depend on, nobody to talk to. Um, I just went in the whole depression stage where I just kind of locked up. But um, through the grace of God, I was able to get myself together and get back on my feet with with the help of my amazing fiance, who has been there for me through thick and thin at my highest and my lowest moments in life. I was able to get back on my feet and get back on the ground. Uh, Dante, it's it's known that the uh, your your first agent just kind of left you high and dry after you got cut and. As we know in the NFL, that happens to a lot of guys, even ones who become great, have to hit a few bumps in the early part of the road. Did you ever get a resolution with your agent? Did you ever get a hold of them before you uh, changed gears, or, or that just never got resolved? Well, it, it never got resolved. And then, uh, well, actually, I did get in contact with them. Um, it took me for for me to call him off of my fiance's phone to, to actually be in contact with them. And then when we looked online, we found out that he had a second number. So we called that number off of her phone, and he, he picked up immediately. So it was discouraging, but, you know, I, I was able to, to get some closure with uh, terminating that, that that agreement with him. Uh, did that help with the turning point with you? You know, you are going through the your dark days uh, and looking for that spark of faith to kind of Turn turn the uh, the ship around. Was finding that closure kind of part of what got you back into the into the swing of you know the I still got the dream. I want to see the dream through. Uh, yeah, it was. You know, I, I saw it as a as a new chapter in my life. You know, starting over and you know just just hitting the reset button basically, and you know finding someone that that you know wants to represent me and represent me in the right way. And someone that I can find loyal and dependable, even in my hard times. So, yeah, it was. I, I, I would call it a new chapter in my life. And, and yeah, new chapter indeed. Uh, you you got this tryout. You, you know, you, you got called by the New York Giants. Did any other teams from any from either the NFL or the CFL or any other leagues contact you besides the Giants? Well, um. The week prior to the Giants, I was um, I was actually in New Jersey with the with the Jets, and uh, they said they liked what they saw and that they'll keep me on the short list and that they'll stay in contact with me. And uh, basically the same thing with the Giants. They said they liked what they saw. They was interested, and you know I did a lot of good things and that they'll keep me on the short list. So um, I, I'm, I'm, I was actually this past week in in the transition. Of signing with a new agent, so we're. Uh, I actually had California, uh, Oakland, uh, contact me, and you no, know, 
I lost a little bit of contact there because of my transitional period between signing with a new agent. So, uh, luckily, my new agent has some ties out there in Oakland, so we'll be able to rekindle that fire. Uh, you know, Nick and I are not professional athletes. Uh, unfortunately, I stopped growing at about five, nine and a half, so it kind of ended there. Uh, but tell, uh, tell us, uh, from a, a professional athlete standpoint, what's it like getting, you know, finding an agent, getting getting with an agent? Because, you know, we hear about it, but we don't actually see what goes into the process. We just hear, oh, so-and-so has signed with whoever. Uh, it's a it's a stressful uh, process, you know. Um, me personally, I, I went through... I went through it all in the past year. You know, um, everybody thinks, you know, you get the best agent, you sign, and everything is good. That's that's not the case because there are bad agents out there and that are agents that try to sell you with things that they, they think you want to hear but won't back it up because that's not what they believe in or you don't share the same values as as you do. And it causes issues later on down the road because you would never thought that because their first impression was so great. They sold you with their first impression. You're basically sold on what they told you. So you're just, it's just a, a a difficult process because you really never know their true character until the hard times come. Now, when you were staying in the tent, as they would say, it was called the tent of faith. And the story goes is that you pitched your tent, the Falcons, you know, one of their head scouts came out, you know, had a conversation with you, you know, said he would go back in, talk to the people. Next thing you know, you know, the authorities come, they ask you to move the tent, you move the tent across the street. And then you stay there for about five to five to six days. Authorities come back, pitch the tent. You when they tell you to pitch the tent, you do, and that's when you get the phone call from the Jets. During those five or six days, what was the what was the reflection that you were going through? Because I can only imagine, you know, here you are, you know, you know, over six feet, three hundred twenty pounds. You know, you go from the highs of playing for a professional football team to staying in a tent and. You know what was what was the mindset that you had, and why was it called the tent of faith? Well, uh, it was called the tent of faith because, as I stated earlier, the whole movement is about keeping the faith, keeping the fight, keeping the drive to 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 accomplish what you believe in, to, to conquer your dreams, and uh, the tent. Over the over the, the the five six days I was in the tent, it was reality for me because I don't have a home. So, you know, it, it really hit that you know I I don't want to be in the stage and and it motivated me to to push even harder because even though that was a reality for me for me it was a reality that could be changed with one opportunity. So my mindset was to change the reality of what can possibly happen because that tent was reality for me because I don't have a home right now. 
And I'm still fighting for an opportunity. I'm still fighting for stability to find a home for me and my family. So that that tent was really reality for me. It it really sunk in. It was a great experience. I felt like I've I've grown to know myself as well as what I'm capable of. And just the just the using the surroundings, things I, I found in the surroundings in my environment, just to work out with. That was great also because, you know, you don't need a gym. You don't need some fancy gym. If you can just find some things in your environment, your surroundings, it will be better than the gym because I'm a country boy. So people who grew up maybe lifting weights, I grew up carrying laws and hay bales and uh, it's this term they call country strength. So I, I just kind of went back to my childhood with that because, uh, it, it was a struggle, and it's still a struggle. And um, I just want to let everybody know that regardless of what happens, what hardships I may face, I'm not giving up. Now, the tryout with the Jets was right before the draft. They did not offer you a contract. And then after that, you had your tryout with the Giants, you, you know, your, your phone call with the Raiders. Where does everything stand for Dante Rumpf right now after the try after the tryout with the uh, with the Giants as well as the phone call with the Raiders? Well, uh, to keep fighting, um, I'm not going to put all my eggs in one basket. Depend on one specific team. I mean, I'm available to to any club. I feel like uh, how much I've grown over the past eight nine months as a person as well as a player, I will benefit any club. Um, I've been working on my technique. I've been working on different things. I've been studying film. I've been studying greats. I've been studying Michael Strahan, Warren Sapp, all, all of the defensive linemen greats as, as far as Hall of Famers and just trying to follow their philosophy and learn from them and how they do things. So um, um, my mind is open right now, Uh Failure is not an option in my mind. It, it never was and it never will be. Well, Dante, I have to say your story uh, should be an inspiration to anybody that wants to play the game of football. Uh, not many people know about your, you know, your up- upbringing. Um, not many people knew about your story until it got picked up, you know, in the beginning of May with regards to what happened. And I got to say, I, I, what do you call, I am in awe of you for putting up this type of awesome fight to get where you knew where you want to get. And I hope that, you know, some team does decide to offer you that contract so you can settle down for yourself, for your family, for everything. Because to me, you stand for what's right in this world. Normal, Any normal person would probably, you know, think about giving up. You never thought about that. Lord knows, you know, what was going on in your mind, you know, during that time after you got cut by the Falcons and staying in the tent and everything like that. But the perseverance that you have shown has been 
nothing short of amazing. And I applaud you for everything, and I do hope somebody gives you that opportunity. And I mean that sincerely from the bottom of my heart. And I will be one of your biggest fans. I will be following your trajectory as to what happens to Dante Rumpf, you know, and now until the future. And I think I can also speak for Andrew in saying that, you know, we are definitely 110% rooting for you, and we will continue to beat the drum for you. I mean, I was there nine months ago when, you know, everything started to happen, and, you know, I've been following your story, and we will do whatever it needs to be done to continue to take that story to the next level for you, in which people know, you know, who the real Dante Rump is. So, whatever you need done, sir, just do not hesitate to ask either me or Andrew. We will, you know, do whatever whatever it takes. So, to continue to publicize your story, to continue to hopefully someone listens in which they're like, you know what, we're gonna, we, so you'll get another phone call and let us know that you get another shot somewhere because... It would be foolish and foolhardy for any NFL, CFL, AFL team, whatever it may be, not to give you a shot to play football. Thank you so much, Nick. And uh, <clears throat> you know, I, I really appreciate you, you know, allowing time out of your busy schedule to to come on and you know share my story and and share a little bit of my background and who I am and what I stand for. You know, this this is bigger than me. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to be a tool in God's hands. That's that's how I look at it. And you know, everything I do is to glorify Him and you know to to make my family, my fiance, my two kids proud. So you know, it, it's it's bigger than me at the end of the day. I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing this for everyone else that I inspire and that I motivate. Andrew, you have any yeah, uh, Dante, you know, one of my favorite Will Smith movies is The Pursuit of Happiness. And I don't know if you've seen that, but uh, it's a similar situation. Uh, Will Smith ends up homeless with his kid. Um, situation looks real bad, but he gets an opportunity and busts his tail and has to actually work behind everybody else to succeed. Uh, but he never gives up. And, and I, I sense a, a similar spirit coming from you. And your story resonates a lot with me. I was two steps away from being in a similar situation as you uh, back when I was uh, in middle school. And uh, so even though I didn't – and I ended up still with a shelter over my head, uh, I was in a bad place for a while until I gained clarity and perspective. And for a 14-year-old kid, it's a little more difficult than a a 25-year-old adult to to, to figure it out. But uh, I got to give you all the credit in the world. Uh, I've seen smaller things break people, and, and you don't sound broken at all. And keep your chin up, man. You, you'll uh, you'll get there, one way or the other. You'll get there. Just keep the faith. Thank you. I appreciate it. And um, I just want to take this time to say that everybody that's listening, please follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Dante Rump NFL. Uh, shout out to my agent Scott Bergman. And a special shout-out to my amazing fiancé, Just Love. I love you, baby. And this is for you 
and my two kids, and I just want to let my two kids know that Daddy loves you. That's awesome. Dante, thank you so much for joining us this evening. We will definitely keep in touch, and we will definitely have you back on if you have any news that you want to share, you know, with everybody. I'll be the first one in line to to break something and get you whatever needs to get out there. So thank you so much for joining us this evening. No, thank you. Thank you. It's been great. All right. Have a good night. All right. You too. And that, that was Dante from former Kentucky Wildcat. Andrew, I got to tell you, that's one hell of a great story, though. And, I mean, when it, when I first heard about it, I had to not get Dante on air because, you know, stories like this never get told. I mean, you hear all the bad stuff about players and 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 everything. And with all the negative press that we've been getting lately coming from the Golden Shield, you know, you need something like this. You need someone as grounded and someone that had now has a clear mind and a clear goal of what needs to be done. And Dante Rump is one of those is is one of those guys. And I, you know, it's very heartwarming and uplifting to listen to his story. Uh, it is, and it's it's one and it, not even his story included. I already hated Hard Knocks. Uh, his story accentuates my distaste for that show. Uh, because what happened to him on that show, I think, had a direct correlation to uh, what he's had to go through the rest of the year. I, I think if he if the Falcons were not on hard knocks, uh, he would not he would have been cut like any any other player. But he wouldn't have gone through the as much of a hardship, in my opinion. Uh, I think uh, an opportunity would have presented itself more quickly, and, and he would have been able to to do something with it. I mean, he's got talent. You don't you don't make it in the SEC without a, a certain degree of talent, uh, but it, it just goes on the show that this television program has some negative results. And I never liked Brian Cox. He was an annoying player. He was even worse as a coach. Uh, and, and and this was very much his stack uh, Cox's personality. Uh, he always rubbed me the wrong way, and, and I've never seen a, someone directly affected by it. Uh, but uh, And you just cut out. <laughs> Always wait. Uh, did I? Of a... Am I back? Yeah, you're back. Oh, sorry and about that. Um, <laughs> my normal my normal PC is out of commission, so I'm using the backup today. So I apologize for that. Uh, but uh, what, what I was saying, and I don't know where I disappeared, was that uh, we don't see what goes on in the locker room. So this the show showed us that there's a lot of dark stuff that goes on there, and Dante got the short end of the stick here. But i got to tell you, between the time where he mentions his Twitter handle and we got off, got off the phone, he got himself a new follower in me. <laughs> I know, and what do you call it? And like I said, you know, I've been following him for quite some time. And when I saw the story come out, you know, in the in early May, I was one of the first people to reach out to him and go, is this true? And he told me, he was like, yeah, this is all true and stuff. And I was like, okay, well, 
I weep or whatever you need me to do, I'll, you know, whatever you need me to do, I'll do. I mean, if you want to come on my show and tell my and tell your story, great. And what ended up happening was, you know, ESPN, you know, all the major networks started picking up on this. But then after that, Deflate Gate started once again. And, well, guess what? They all flocked to New England and Tom Brady and all that stuff. And they leave him by the lurch. And I was one of the only people, you know, from the independent scene to, you know, keep in touch with him and go, look, whenever you're ready to come on, come on. And we finally set it up for this week, and it couldn't happen. I I was just, you know, I have a smile on my face because his story finally got told. Yeah, it was in the local press like the New York Post and, you know, 11 Alive, you know, some decent publications in the Northeast, but, you know, I'm really happy for him. And I have no doubt that he's going to make it. Whether it's with the big guys in the NFL or if he travels up to Canada to, to, you know, to, to Canada playing the CFL, you know, he's going to get an opportunity. Someone will see his talent and someone will see his story and someone will give him that opportunity. Uh, Nick, I think part of it is him getting a new agent. Uh, I think that'll help with promoting promoting him to different teams and stuff. When you have no no agent, uh, look what Dante Culpepper did to himself. When you have no agent, good things don't happen to you in, in professional sports. So hopefully the new agent being finalized will, will help him prom- be promoted properly through the proper channels so he gets those shots, gets that tryout, gets that potential contract. Even if it's in the CFL, you know, you go somewhere, you bide your time, and then you use that as an opportunity to show that I can hang with the big boys and then get an opportunity back in the NFL. You know, um, it's worked for, for multiple. It worked for, you know, guys like Kurt Warner uh, who fizzled in the NFL, had to go somewhere else and came back. You know, this is not the end of the story. Uh, there's, there's a lot of guys who, who do not do well initially or something happens, an injury, some, some sort of circumstance happens and they don't make it in the league uh, but then they get another shot later and, and excel. So, you know, the faith that he has is, is very it's very heartwarming. Uh, and hopefully uh, the universe responds to it and gives him an opportunity that, that he's working really hard for. And what do you call his agent? If nobody, you know, if nobody uh, caught it earlier, his agent's name is Scott Bergman. Uh, what do you call? He is the principal of the law offices of Scott Bergman. Uh, he, not only does he does regular like criminal defense, business litigation, but he also does NFL player representation. And Scott, you know, you got a good guy there. Do the job right. Get him a job. <laughs> Trust me, it will make your life so much more. Complete. Let's just put it like that. But again, his agent Scott Bergman. Kudos to you, sir. You got a good guy. Just get him a get him another opportunity, and we'll you know and make the story uh, finally complete. So, with that being said, speaking of agents, we have a super agent with us tonight. This guy has been in 
the business for 40, 30 to 40 years, and he's had some amazing clients. But not only that, he happens to be a very shortly of an accomplished author, as he just his book, NFL Bruiser. I am honored to have him on my show tonight to talk about not only his career as an NFL agent, but about his book. Ladies and gentlemen, the venerable Ralph Sindrich. Ralph, how are you tonight? I'm doing super, Nick. Thanks for having me on. It's very kind of you. And, and uh, uh, you know, I'm uh, you were talking about how far going back. I'm 65 years old now, so that's a Saturday night. I don't know how many of these I'm going to have left in my lifetime. So I'm looking at the I'm looking at a bottle of Jameson, you know, and had a little bit of ginger ale, and I couldn't decide. Wine really does does me in, but I figure I had to kick back a little bit and and uh, do the old develop thing, and I do that with a good friend of mine. Uh, uh, in the building, old Morgan O'Brien. But uh, thank you for having me on. Hey, no problem. Now, what do you call you? Your your story is actually pretty uplifting as well because you came from you know an economically challenged background in Avella, Pennsylvania. You became an All-American football player and wrestler at the University of Pittsburgh. You were a linebacker in the NFL for four years, and then you became a nationally recognized sports lawyer and agent. And on top of that now, you have a book, The NFL <laughs> Bruiser. So how did NFL Bruiser come along after accomplishing what you have accomplished in, you know, throughout, you know, throughout your amazing career as a, as a sports lawyer and agent? Well, yeah, I have a big smile on my face. It makes me feel good. Thank you. Uh, it is NFL Brawler, uh, B-R-A-W-L-E-R, Although uh, I, I, in the book I do say at the beginning I was called Bruiser uh, among other names, uh, but uh, uh, I do you know it, it's a wonderful opportunity to be able to give thanks to uh, a lot of people and this being an appropriate time. One of them was a guy by the name of Mario Gabrielli who uh, was my little league coach and and he was uh, offered a scholarship to Waynesburg College, but. Uh, he passed it up, and uh, he, he fought for his country. He went over into Europe, and, and uh, you know, when he was over there, uh, uh, you know, one, one game uh, against uh, Washington High School or Trinity, one of the two, uh, he scored all the points. It was a 6 nothing loss, but he was over in Germany, and, and uh, every, you know, there was shelling going on and everything, and, and uh, he went into a foxhole, and he met a guy by the name of Ed James, who was a guy uh, who he played against, and that was the greatest moment in his life because he drop-kicked two points, and, and uh, he got a safety also, uh, a drop point, uh, three points. It was a field goal. Uh, they, you know, I didn't even know they did that back then. But in Germany, he had his leg blown off, uh, and uh, his dream of becoming a professional football player died there, and he became our little league coach. And, and uh, we just had great lessons from uh, Mario. And uh, one time during the uh, – when it was just really cold outside and, and we were playing – we're going to play a game. Why would they ever play at Thanksgiving? And it seemed much colder back then. But uh, there was rain coming up, and we were playing a, a district of – more than a couple times our size, and and uh, Mario to make us tough, uh, and he had his leg blown off, uh, uh, so so he had a cane, and he limped over, and he put the ball in the middle of a cold mud puddle, and it was raining and sleeting that day, and and uh, he just told us to go after, and and you know when we were done, he just said uh, he pulled us all together, and he said you guys think I'm hard on you, and 
I hear the talk, uh, you know, some of you thinking because uh, of uh, losing my leg, I did this to make you guys tough because when you're out there, you're playing, it's going to be cold and, and things are going to go against you and, and, and you'll think that uh, uh, you won't be able to go through it, because, but you will because you're going through it today and it won't be as bad when you play because they'll call the game off. <laughs> and old, old Mary on that day when we played him, we just, uh, it was you know, the guys coming out who they had maybe two, three times our size of a Vela. You know, that's out in the little old boondocks. And uh, we just kicked their ass up and down the field. Now, it's amazing that, you know, you, you know, you pretty much have done it all. I mean, you had clients that were the foundation of any team they that were either underpaid, underappreciated grunts to some of the best known <laughs> Compensated players, you know, in the NFL. And have you been reading? Have you been reading my book? It's not out there yet. <laughs> well, well, what do you, you know? Have to, I, I, you I, have I the have history down. You to, have the history down. <laughs> I have Nick's my way. Hacker. <laughs> well, I'm not a hacker. Come on, but no, in all, <laughs> but in all seriousness, you know, you know, as an agent, how do you find the time? I mean. You go from pretty much, you know, from one end of the spectrum to the opposite end of the spectrum. I mean, you, you know, you were out there fighting for the little guy, you know, to, you know, get them that, you know, get him into, you know, into the NFL, you know, get him that salary. And then you had the clientele where they had to get the top, you know, the, the top dollar. How did you balance, you know, your clients in such a way that, you know, you had you made the time not only for the type A alpha dog, but for the type B, you know, for the type B grunt. It had to be, you know, I, 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 now I'm not even close to like, you know, being an agent or anything like that. But if if, if I if that if I were in your shoes, it would be a very fine line to keep that balance to keep everyone ha- happy. Oh no, not at all. Uh, you see, I, I was uh, one of those little guys. Uh, who struggled to make it. I love being able to impart that type of knowledge and nobody else could get these guys uh, how to stay on a, or how to make a 43-man roster, things that you do. Uh, you're on the sideline. You know, you play all the special teams. You know, you're no big shot now like you were in, in, in college. Uh, you know, you're there. You, you're on the special teams. You see the guys when they get nicked, they come out to the sideline. You let the coach know at that position. You let the special teams coach know. You let the backup guy know. You let his backup know. And you got those guys remembered. When it comes time to get cut down time and they're looking for guys to keep, if you're anywhere equal with any other guys, you're staying. Now, it, it takes a little more work and all the rest, and it may sound like a kiss-up, but it's more than that. It's, you know, you're, you're filling your part as a, uh, you know, as a member of the team. So I understand that little guy. But at the same time, it was nice to have Will Warford, you know, who is uh, the guy a lot, a lot of people hear about. But uh, he was the guy that formed the, the, the whole movie, The Blind Side. He was the guy that had a contract. It was a landmark uh, contract that uh, would make him the highest-paid player. Uh, and I inserted that in with old uh, 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 old Ursay, and Ursay was called the devil. I got a whole other story on him, uh, but <laughs> but uh, <laughs> only Bob would put that in there, and and it was a screw you provision. It made him the highest paid player on the Colts. Buffalo couldn't. It was a poison pill. Buffalo couldn't match it because they had Jim Kelly and Thurman Thomas, uh, and that's when you know there was a whole big you know. Well, the NFL I really. 
uh, I don't know, I really pissed off the NFL, and they sued me on that too. And that's, by the way, one of my better chapters, I think, is NFL versus Sindrich because I get down and dirty. The language is a little bit tough, uh, but that's what happens. You know, the NFL would look for retribution. Uh, so uh, one thing, though, with the book, when you talk about that, again, the balance between the two, the champions I had were top of the line. I mean, you look at the guys and you say, okay, uh, Al Toon, Bill Fraley, Paul Gruber, John Offerdahl, uh, Herschel Walker, I did the trade there. But when you just start going through the names, uh, and I did that when I was president of IMG along with John Offerdahl's uh, contract, which was a holdout with uh, you know, old Robbie down there, but several contracts with Bill Polian, and, and, and there's really th- I had three chapters with him. So I enjoyed working with the NFL people, and, and really the story that I have is a love story uh, about the game, uh, you know, I'm, uh, this was my way out, uh, and it did me everything. And uh, I am nothing but appreciative. That's not to say I don't see the wrongs and don't feel obliged to to point them out and have the ability to fight the NFL. There aren't too many people that can do that. And, and quite frankly, and I say it in the book, uh, my, you know, all the battles that I had, I, I think I was over ninety five percent of of wins. Uh, uh, but things that you learn from ball that helped you against these guys. And, you know, uh, one of the one of the things I was you know, looking at, you talked about the uh, the the Wolford contract with the poison pill. We've actually seen that more recently uh, with like Jake Hutchinson and, and a couple other players where uh, that same kind of provision was put in there. Uh, I guess it's kind of you know. I guess it's all about you know retro. You know what was in then is is now big now. <laughs> well, it was supposed to. That was a loophole, uh, and they, and they 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 were pissed. They sued me. Uh, you know, and I have that chapter NFL versus Sindri. So I mean, they sued me on a bogus type thing dealing with uh, Wolford, and I kicked their butts. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, even in the deposition, the attorney, uh, the preppy little uh, smart ass attorney from Harvard on the other side. You know, mentions uh, uh, you know some of this stuff. Uh, so you know, the, the bottom line, the bottom line is though, uh, out there uh, with with Wolford, it was copied afterward, and I I do recall Hutchison afterwards. Uh, uh, before that time, one of the grunts though that really, and if you look back, 1988, Paul Gruber uh, was the first offensive lineman as the fourth pick in the country to be the highest paid player and the highest paid offensive tackle. Oviedo Stellino, who's a writing Hall of Fame, wrote about it at the time. And and it, it was a started to change it for the grunts. And I knew a lot about offensive linemen because I played linebacker. I mean, I I found maybe with the exception of, of a few or maybe more than a few offensive line coaches, I was as competent as anyone in the business on judging offensive linemen because that's all I played against. And I had to play inside and outside. And you know what? I wasn't, I was more of a wrestler, too small uh, to go to defensive line. So I had to adapt the linebacker, but I didn't have the maneuverability. You can't have any weaknesses in the NFL. And my, my weakness uh, when you got there was pass coverage. You know, you need, and and by that time my knees were pretty shot. I mean, I had uh, uh, two or three operations uh, uh, at that point. I've always had a soft spot for for offensive linemen because uh, when I was younger, I, I used to be one. And when I moved, I actually moved down to the Tampa Bay area uh, when Paul Gruber was still playing. It was later in his career in '97. 
but he wore the same number I did in school, 74. So he was he was my favorite player on the Bucks at the time. So uh, it, it's just kind of a, a cool little small world thing. But but let me ask you, let me change gears Wait, let me a little just bit. Say one thing. Let me just oh, okay, say go one ahead. Thing on, just one thing on Paul Gruber. Just as, if you ever had to pick a guy or, or with your son, you say, who can we pick out to be an upstanding guy who's this, that, and all the rest? It's Paul Gruber. Yeah, and, and you you look back at that Buccaneers team, ninety seven to ninety nine range where his career ended. You had guys like him, Mike Allstott, uh, and, and Ward Dunn, who who did some amazing things for the community. Uh, okay. Even though you had you know more loudmouths like well, Warren Sapp on the team, that actually was a team that did a lot of good things outside of you know off the field. It, we sometimes forget that you know football players are people too. And, right. and I just like to kind of throw that out there. Sure. Uh, but I, I do have a question for you. Uh, turning back the clock, you know, you were involved with the, the Herschel Walker trade, which was a landmark deal. Uh, what was it like being heavily involved in that? Well, you know, it was one of those things where I was going by the seat of my pants. Uh, I had things going on at home. I was president of uh, IMG, International Management Group Football Division. Uh, and these guys, it was a great uh, marketing firm and all the rest, but they knew Jack about uh, football and really didn't have the patience to be involved with football and fo- because football operated entirely differently. It didn't pay the big bucks back then like golf did and the other things, but they wanted to be in it because, because you know, uh, they, they could see the growth. Uh, and I just get a call, you know, at one time, you know, it's late at night and, you know, and I have enough, and I couldn't go down right then, and, you know, but uh, uh, the, the call was that the jet was leaving, you know, seven o'clock in the morning. Jerry says it's going. And I just said, Hey, do you just let them know it's going to run out of gas? I just can't be there. Uh, and so I did make it down, though, and the meetings were down in Dallas. And, and uh, this thing, you know, you hear it from a lot of different people and all the rest, but uh, this deal was done by Jerry uh, and really no one else. Mike Lynn was the other guy on the side. He wasn't going to pay jack shit uh, to any of these guys. And there was no way a deal was going to come down with any team in the NFL because Herschel wasn't going to leave without receiving just one heck of a uh, contract. Uh, and nobody else was willing to do it, and certainly not Mike Lynn. Uh, and nobody else was willing to give up the picks but Mike Lynn. So it was a deal that only Jerry could make and had to make, uh, and it was at a time to where – uh, the team was on the field. And, and when you get into trades, they're fluid. I mean, they come down quickly. Uh, and it was uh, basically when I said that, you know, Mike Lynn, here's what we want. He, he basically said, take a bar of soap, go in the bathroom, and just do what you want with it because we ain't paying you any of that. And that's where Jerry stepped up. And Jerry wasn't, you know, he didn't get out of the room to make any calls or whatever else. He just said, here's what we do. You know, we'll, we'll do it. I said, Jerry, it's the only way it's going to get done. And he just sucked it up, and that was totally his call. <laughs> totally his call. Well, uh, what a, what a huge deal. That, Jerry sorry? got a lot of abuse from other owners for paying that compensation. I mean, I forget was, you know, and it was actually Peter Johnson, head of IMG, who went over, you know, the list of Benny's uh, that he got, you know, the like the house there and, and uh, club seats and, and an automobile like the one he had. I mean, just a whole bunch of stupid stuff in addition to a lot of cash up front. And, and it what a dip, you know, that was such a landmark deal in the NFL kind of, you know, for such a marquee player. Uh, and so I guess it's kind of cool that you can kind of look back and say, you know, I had I had a part of that. You know, 
I got to witness something that made such a ripple effect in the NFL. And, and for uh, you know a guy who who dedicates a chapter to the uh, to the shield and and his lawsuit, I, I guess you kind of have to smile at yourself at how upset the rest of the league was <laughs> because of the shield <laughs> that that went down. Uh, I, I I love seeing the uh, the shield and the, and the NFL office kind of squirm you know with with all the things going on because uh, it shows that they are indeed fallible and not perfect. But um, uh, just as a as an aside, yeah, uh, before, one, uh, though, one though, yeah, I don't know if you're following professional wrestling, and I, when you talk about a landmark deal, I didn't know whether you were familiar at all with Bill Fredrick's contract. Uh, uh, 1985, and uh, we used to leverage uh, uh, wrestling uh, because Bill was such a phenomenal athlete and all the rest. Uh, and it was uh, WrestleMania two that was coming up, and and Bruno San Martino was a local uh, wrestler, a champion, and just a, a teddy bear of a guy. I, you know, I became friends with him at the school for the blind when I pl- uh, played at Pitt, uh, and uh, used him as leverage when I called in Tom Brotz and and uh, basically. Uh, I knew the Brats, uh, and I don't know how much time we have, and I, I don't want to suck up all the time. How much time do we have? We got another time. We got another Okay, go. so well, how much time did you say? Ten minutes. Ten minutes, okay. Well, uh, you know, the long and short of it is uh, uh, I, we basically set up something to where I would have Bruno San Martino uh, in an office when – Tom Brotz came in, and I would also have uh, Bill Freilich, and, and uh, Bruno would get up and leave whenever Tom Brotz came in. And John was the general manager for the Atlanta Falcons, and I knew one of the things these guys always liked to do was to drink, and you had to be careful because they were all pros at drinking. You know, They looked like choir boys in the morning, and, and I'd, see, you know, I'd see agents out at the senior bowl, and they'd just, you know, they looked like they were dead. Uh, and one thing I knew with Brotz, and, uh, and we were the second pick in the country, so we were holding everything up. Uh, Bruce Smith had already signed by you know, by my buddy old Bill Polian uh, up in Buffalo, and uh, basically, uh, Framing's old, old man said, hey, Ralph, uh, you know, my son, I, I, I love the son of a bitch, but I'm, he's, I tell you, you got to you got to get him as much money now, but you got to protect him in the future because he'll spend every damn dime he gets. And so basically, I had, to, I had to try to figure out a way to get some money up and uh, up front and something on the tail end. And so uh, I hired some attorneys who come up with a theory of a rabbi trust. A rabbi trust meant where you put a certain, uh, a big lump sum of money in now, and you can't touch it for a certain period of time. And Bill's t- uh, uh, contract, I think, it was 50, 20 years. It was 20 years from the date deposited. Uh, and basically, it was you know one of these things to where uh, it would pay him a lot of money over a period of time, and that's what his dad wanted, but nobody ever did that stuff. Uh, so I broke all the rules, and, and uh, I got a bottle of Pepto-Bismol. I sucked it down, uh, bought a case of uh, Iron City beer, maybe two, uh, and uh, when Bratz came in, I asked him if he wanted to go fishing. I knew he loved fishing. You know, he was out of the chair right away. And uh, we go, and we're drinking uh, you know, beer at the, and fishing for trout at my dad's pond uh, out in the country. And, uh, you know, it's just a little farm pond. And uh, uh, basically, uh, you know, we do this contract, and it was a rabbi trust. And it was one of those that paid him uh, $150,000 a year for the rest of his life. Never been done uh, before, never done before, and never done afterwards. I don't know why they let it through. I think because, uh, you know, we were drinking, Tom and I were just drinking some beer. But it was done on paper. And, and uh, at the end, when, when uh, you know, we, uh, we 
had looked at our lines, and both of us had fish on our lines. And, you know, I pulled mine out and pulled out the hook, and blood got out, uh, onto the paper that I had written as a contract. And uh, I looked at Tom, I said, well, you know, at least I can tell everyone I got every last drop of blood out of you guys. And uh, But it was one of those deals. It was $7.6 million or $7.7 million. Uh, and Bruce Smith, the number one pick. And, you know, I got to go back on this. I'm pretty sure I'm right or close to it. $2.6 million total, something like that. So it was one of those. It was just uh, it happened under the right circumstances at the right time. And uh, really a good story. A lot of that, though, has, has to do also with the mentor that I had, a Korean War veteran, uh, also a union boss, Bill Freilich Sr., who was this one tough SOB. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's another whole chapter in the story. Uh, but uh, uh, he is the reason why Billy became uh, the type of player and really be the reason why Billy got that contract, because he was strong behind everything all the time. You know, what do you call The one other contract that I remember very well was James Farrier. And it, what do you call I remember it was, what do you call 1997. He had an agent, and that, that agent pretty much was, like, really just not working out too well. And I remember when I got, what do you call I was watching you know, sports at the time, and they mentioned, you know, that, that, you know, they hired, he hired you as an agent, and the first thing I thought of was, oh, boy, the Jets are going to for a little bit of, the Jets, the Jets front office right now is going to be cursing because Ralph Sanders right now is going to get Jason, yep. is going to get Barry or his money, and sure enough, and we, right, sure and enough, we did, did the, everything we did and anything, everything on the sun. <laughs> Well, you know, it was one of those things to where uh, pushed on him at a very late date was a zero signing bonus concept. And, you know, this was a Bill Parcells. And, uh, you know, Bill Parcells can be not only a persuasive son of a bitch, but, you know, he can also be, you know, one of these guys who'll try to push you or bogart you. Uh, and, and, you know, in, in, with me, uh, there were times where he tried to get me to compromise my duty to my client. Never happened, you know. It never happened with me. But it was one of one of those situations to where, uh, you know, why would you want to change after that late time? I come in at the eleventh hour. Here I am, boys. You know, James hired me. All of a sudden, he wants this deal. And by the way, add a little bit more to it. And uh, I think I took them all the way down to maybe ten dollars in their salary cap, uh, and got horse screaming at the uh, old. Uh, uh, Mike Tannenbaum was down in, uh, and that was one, I think one of his first big contracts. And with Pauline, and, and you know, I, and I threatened uh, the kick Pauline's ass over, you know, one thing or another. Uh, not Pauline, why well, we did that too, but with, with Parcells, and and but also, you know, there were times of making up too, where I sent him up a case or two of Iron City beer, and he was always appreciative. So there were a lot of stories going back at that time. But yeah, I was brought in like as a you know, kind of a savior, you know, it cost uh, a lot of time. And, but, you know, there were some uh, chicken crap things that went on there later, too, after in Farrier's contract, like towards the end. And, and and first, you know, he was played out of position, and that happens a lot. I mean, I had a guy, Trev Elbridge, with the old barber, say, uh, it wasn't him, but Bill Tobin. I mean, you know, these knuckleheads put him, uh, he was anything but there an inside backer, you know. So they put him in the inside, and he gets chewed up. They put him as a sit-and-read type of guy, and I played linebacker. You know, this guy was an attack guy. You know, you put him in the Pittsburgh-type 
uh, uh, defense like a James Carrier, you know, and, and boom. But the James was more of an inside guy, and they were trying to make outside up with the, with the Jets. And so, you know, sometimes talented athletes get put out of position. Things happen that way. Uh, but, of course, uh, you know, history is that uh, it was the best free agent signing uh for the Pittsburgh Steelers ever, and and you know James went to the Super Bowl, Pro Bowl, and all the rest. So it ended up being a great story. Well, Ralph, I got to tell you, I mean, the, the the amount of knowledge and the amount of you know backbone that you have when you go up against like everybody pretty everybody when it comes to the uh, <laughs> when it comes to when it, when it comes to negotiating. I, I what do you call? It? If I were a GM, I would cringe because I know what I would be getting myself into with you. I mean, you pretty much no holds barred. Take it by take it take it by the bull by the horns, and get what you got to get for you know your for your clients. And your track you. record, your track record speaks for itself. I mean, they, 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 there's just no bones about it. I mean, if there ha- if there was, and I'm not saying this to blow smoke, and I'm saying this is the truth. If there was a Mount Rushmore. Of NFL agents, <laughs> your face has to be up there. It would be Thank you. you know. It would be you, Steinberg, Shatsky, and and um, God, the guy that escapes my name right now, and Gilbert. And the four of you right now would be like the four of you right now would have like the biggest smiles on your face because you know what you do. Like I said, not only for your Type A clients, but for the Type B and even Type C clients. You guys go out and do what you got and do what you got to do, and I commend you. I salute you. Why don't you let the people know before you go more a little bit more about the book and where they, everybody can find you on uh, on uh, social media? Well, uh, you know, first it's sin like in Cindy and rich like in money, and I don't have any and. And, uh, you know, using that, uh, I'm going to use that every time you ever hear me talk because I don't, you know, <laughs> it's like even when, even at the funeral of my little league coach, Ab Rush, who died after, uh, and, and I will say, you know, one of the things about my book is uh, I give love back and respect back to my coaches. Ab Rush with my, uh, Abby Rush with my little league wrestling uh, and uh, uh, football and baseball coach, and uh, he was a guy. Uh, you know, I went to uh, uh, when I went to a Waynesburg wrestling tournament, uh, and and over there, and I really just uh, got my ass kicked. Uh, and it was junior high, and this guy, you know, this guy had a beard. He smelled like cigarettes, and he would beat the hell out of me. Uh, you know, I don't even know if I had hair down by my dinkle at that time. Uh, but it was one of those situations to where I wasn't used to ever getting beat. And this guy, my my coach, Abby Rush, Rush, who just died. Uh, maybe a month ago or so, so uh, held me all the way back. It probably, you know, it probably have authorities looking uh, at him. While I cried in his arms, uh, and uh, we came up with a plan, and uh, it was, to, you know, I was going to go to wrestling camp, and it was with my dad AJ, and and uh, at the time there was Russ House wrestling camp up, uh, and he was a coach at the Bloomfield, uh, uh, Bloomsburg. Uh, State College, and uh, he had a camp up in the Poconos Mountains, and uh, you know, guys only went there for a week, and then they you know they have a new crew come in the next week. Uh, I didn't know any better, and my dad wanted to get rid of me anyway. I was such a pain in the ass, so he sends me up to this camp uh, for three weeks straight. Well, you know, 
I come out of that camp and I'm a bear. I mean, you know, no one, literally, no one scores any points on me until the regional finals uh, against a guy named John Deano at Trinley High School, school uh, and we went into overtime and, and I beat him. Uh, but, but the point was, it was it was a little league coach and it was Ab uh, who came up with that plan, and, and uh, also, you know, the little league coach when I was at the uh, Hall of Fame and I. Uh, Excuse me, not the Hall of Fame, but uh, when I was in high school in football, WPIAL, I was MVP of the smallest class, uh, Class B, uh, and and I went uh, to the banquet and that being O.L. Abrams, uh, who always took care of me, just a great, great man. Uh, but uh, uh, I looked like a bum, uh, you know. I was I looked like a farmer, you know. I didn't, you know, I, I don't know what the hell I had on. Maybe it's, I think a sport coat. It didn't match, and that it was just. And Lloyd Weston was the uh, uh, All-American at the time, uh, uh, first team All-American in the high school, Mr. Everything. And he comes in, and you know, he has a tailor-made suit on, he has an ascot, and no tie, this, that, cufflinks, and, and uh, you know, I wanted to leave. And uh, uh, I, I guess I'm maybe behind the uh, bleachers where we were, we were sitting and, you know, trying to get Ab to take me home. And he said, Ralph, I just want to, want you to know, and you know this, we're staying here, but uh, uh, ain't nobody care what you're wearing or where you've been, only where you're going. And, you know, I always remembered that and remember him in my book. And, uh, Ab is, uh, you know, uh, I'd always say about Mario, you know, I, I miss you, pal. And, and I, I say that about Abby. But I did get the opportunity with Abby. Uh, he presented me to the uh, and Mario, Mario's been dead for several years now. Both pre- uh, presented me, uh, Mario, uh, the, at the Pennsylvania Hall of Fame. Uh, and I was just uh, extremely honored to have Ab, Ab there, able to live through some stories, and then have him out in the audience for the uh, WPI AL Hall of Fame while uh, they didn't have a presenter. And so it was one of those things to where, you know, you always pray that you have an opportunity to show someone that you love them and to give back. And I was able to do it with Mario when I was playing pro ball, and I'd go to see him, and, and he would uh, make give me his homemade sausage and, you know, used to have so much garlic in there and make, you know, suck the air out of you. Uh, but uh, uh, he'd always exchange a punch with you because in the Army he was the uh, boxing instructor and, uh, you know, uh, he had that leg. And, but it was always it was reminded to him, you know, it wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't how uh, the, wasn't the punches that life gave you is how you took the punch and and so that was something he instilled and and one thing about the book uh, uh, I'm I'm able to show that type of uh, uh, I guess lesson to me and maybe others and and I hope there are some other uh, morals to the stories out there and uh, you know and there are a few chapters where it might even get down dirty I'm sure that would surprise you. Well, Ralph, I want to say thank you so much for joining us tonight. It was amazing talking to you and bringing up, you know, bringing all these memories and stuff. Really appreciate it. Would love to have you come back on in the not-too-distant future. Hope you have a good night, and uh, have a cold one for me, okay? I'm going to have another one. Thank you so much. Hey, I, I enjoy, you know, how, how do you not enjoy just talking about yourself, right? It's everybody's dream. Thanks so much. Exactly. I appreciate being on. Take care. Take have easy. a great night. Thank you. Bye-bye. And that was Ralph Sinrich, NFL super agent, and his book, which will be coming out in the not-too-distant future, NFL Bruiser, something you really, really, really are not going to want to miss and, uh, and definitely want to read. What do you call Before we get to our next guest, Lowell Moore, just want to let you know that 
This show is live right here on Blog Talk Radio, courtesy of Fantasy Sports Warehouse. But fear not, ladies and gentlemen. Not only is this show right here on Fantasy Sports Warehouse, but you could also listen to it on syndication on the following networks. I-95 Sports and Entertainment Network, War Room Sports, Happy Hour Network, The Arena Sports Network, Die Hard Sports Radio, Sports for Fans, The Ace Network, The Sports Crave, Nuts and Bolts Sports, Asylum Sports Network, and Late Night Sports Radio. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, 12 different networks that carry the Mad Scientist Sports Lab. Not bad for a little show that, that people said that couldn't get that couldn't get done, huh? With that hey, said, hey, Nick, Nick yes, I didn't sir. catch that. Can you repeat those again? <laughs> uh, we got we got a guest that we got to get on now. Come on, Drew. Uh, what do you call? I I did my spiel over here, but thank you. I, I'll mention it towards <laughs> the end of the show. <laughs> Actually, this guy's down in your neck of the woods, there, Drew boy, because this and guy, where I'll be tomorrow. This guy, it's amazing the concept that he brought 15 years ago out in California. It has all come to fruition. Every Labor Day, he has this amazing conference in Orlando, Florida. And the concept, it's basically for the fans, by the fans, with the fans. So with that being said... Let me introduce everybody to the founder and CEO of What a Fan, Lowell Moore. Lowell, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing well, Nick. How are you? I'm doing very well. So, explain the concept of What a Fan to everybody in case nobody knows exactly what it is. Well, What a Fan, in a nutshell, is an organization that celebrates and honors sports fans uh, of all genres, both college and professional sports, through recognition awards and appreciation events that we do on an annual basis. And throughout the year, we hold a variety of different events and contests to identify fans that are, are devoted, passionate, loyal, supportive, fanatical fans uh, that fill stadiums and arenas uh, across the world, quite frankly. Um, and our award show and uh, sports fan conference that we hold every Labor Day, as you mentioned, uh, has, has something that we're, we're very excited about. Uh, we continue to grow it and expand it, and uh, we, we've been – Really excited to uh, to honor and pay tribute to sports fans. Now, as a what do you call it? When you thought about this 15 years ago, did you think that it would morph into what it is today? You know something. As a matter of fact, I did. Uh, I I actually have the original uh, PowerPoint plan that that we created, uh, and it was actually 16 years ago, um, uh, we, we began as a television show. Um, I actually shot a pilot for the show. We, we sold that, that pilot. I, I should say we partnered uh, with CBS uh, with that part with that show, and unfortunately, 
uh, 9-11 occurred, and that incident obviously rocked our, our, our country uh, and just put a hold on, on, on entertainment television uh, that year. So our show was, was put on hold because it, our release date was after the 9-11 incident. But, uh, yes, we did know that it would morph into to this. What we did not know um, was all the changes and the new technologies that would come into play uh, now. You know, there, there were no social networks when we began this project. There was no Facebook, no Twitter and YouTube and all of these, these avenues that we have now to, to connect with fans on a day-to-day basis um, did not exist. So, so that's the, the newness that exists for us now that, that we didn't have then. Um, uh, digital cameras, uh, GoPros, and, and all of these things, smartphones, uh, none of that exists uh, 15 years ago when, when we were doing this. Now... Not only do you have, you know, what a fan, you pretty much explained it, you know, right then and there, but, you know, the recognition that you give the fans, you know, is absolutely amazing. I mean, fans from all across the world, and I'm not just talking the United States, I'm talking across the world, they, you know, they post everything on your pay, on your website, and it's amazing when you're talking football, basketball, hockey, soccer, baseball. It's, you know, it's pretty much gone viral. So, you know, what is it about the website that gravitate, that the fan gravitates to, to, you know, place their, you know, pictures on there, to place their videos on there, to actually, you know, join your join your quote unquote your your quote unquote club, and how do they get nominated for like certain awards? Well, it it really, you know, it's a simple concept. I, I, honestly, it it comes down to to just gratitude, right? Just just saying thank you. I mean, it is it really is that simple that someone has has developed a, a program that just says thank you, and, and we just happen to be saying thank you on a global scale to, to fans that really their contribution to the sports industry is insurmountable, right? There's, there's really no way. You, you take the sports fan out of the equation, and I don't care in what sport we're talking and and we've got a serious problem, right? So so the the draw to what we're doing is we're just saying thank you. We we appreciate the the dedication and and the and the the energy and the fanaticism and the and the loyalty and the and the amount of money that you spend uh, from year to year supporting organizations uh, of all genres. Uh, tonight, for example, uh, we also recognize fans in the Arena Football League, and the uh, the Arena Football Fan of the Year uh, is a New Orleans uh, a fan, and 
team tonight presented him with the with his trophy and his ring during during the game. And and I mean I'm I'm looking at the social networks tonight and seeing all the pictures and all the accolades and all the gratitude that not only the team is providing him, but his fan base and the cheerleaders and 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 that's got to be a pretty awesome night for him where he's the focus of attention in addition to his team. So I, I think it's just a fan being told, thank you, you're really important to, to the success that sports has experienced and continues to experience on a day-to-day basis. Drew, you have any questions for Lowell? I, I do. I, I was letting you get your kicks in, Nick. You know, as I, I sit here with my my UCF shirt on, and um, just happen to be going to the city beautiful tomorrow. Uh, hey, great, great <laughs> year you guys had, man. Well, at least in 2013, not so much last year, but uh, we did okay. Uh, True. Uh, I, True. I expect True. the team to be much better in 2015. They got a tough schedule with uh, South Carolina and Stanford away. Um, as you can tell, I'm a I'm a I'm a rabid UCF fan myself. I actually I went to school there. Uh, I was in the the college marching band. Only missed a handful of games of the last uh, fourteen seasons. Uh, well, but my, um, my my missus is a is a is a U uh, uh, graduate as well. So so you guys have that in common. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> but uh, you know what what drove you to to pick Orlando as as the center point for for this event? I mean Orlando is not. By nature, a sports town. It's becoming one. Uh, the support of Orlando City there is is absolutely unbelievable. The MLS has been downright giddy at, at how responsive that city's been. But uh, what drove you to Orlando? That's a great question. Um, well, my my family's here. I, I was actually um, I was based in Los Angeles. Uh, what a fan was created in Los Angeles. Uh, our pilot episode was shot in Los Angeles. Um, uh, my my <laughs> most of my contacts were were in the Los Angeles area, but my family's here, and my daughter's here, and my grandchildren are here. And uh, you know the neat thing about Orlando is it is it is a central uh, lo- location. It it doesn't have an NFL team, uh, so you know we're we're never going to have a Super Bowl here. Uh, we are the number one tourist destination on the planet, so the opportunity to 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 bring it here, uh, hold it here, and grow it here uh, was was appealing because there are a number of of ancillary opportunities. For fans when they come, especially during that Labor Day period, if they want to bring their families down, their children down, you know, there's Disney, SeaWorld. I mean, you know everything that we have here. Um, and you're right, man, the, 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 the uh, Orlando City Soccer, man, they have, they've done a phenomenal job uh, uh, of impacting our city from a sports standpoint. And, and then the foundation of that is the Orlando Magic. So we've got some, some interesting things going on here. And I thought that it would be a great place. Uh, we're in our third year of a five-year developmental plan. Uh, we're, we're still tweaking 
things with, with the Sports Fan Conference and the award show. Uh, this year will be the first year that we film the award show uh, so that we can shop it to some of the networks that we've been talking to. Uh, so we're excited about that. Um, and and we're, still, we're still trying to really get it right. Uh, and we're excited about that. We think Orlando uh, may, be, may be the home for it. We, when we first decided to do uh, the conference and the award show, we actually thought about Las Vegas um, uh, and, and Los Angeles only because I was based there. But it was almost, uh, it was almost launched in, in the Las Vegas area. But I thought Orlando was a little more family-friendly for what we wanted to accomplish. So, so you know, because uh, my alma mater it just happens to share the city, uh, uh, let me try to lobby the, the home field advantage so, so that one of, one of my fellow Knights can, can get an award or something. Uh, they, they will be in town. There is a game uh, that Thursday, just, just happens to be, you know. Nice, nice. You know, it's <laughs> funny that we, we, we haven't had a, a Knight nominated yet. Um, which which saddens me a little bit because there are some great fans out there. Um, we have had uh, uh, Orlando Magic uh, uh, fan uh, not only nominated, but uh, the fat guy. I'm sure you know the the fat guy. Uh, yes. He he won the inaugural year in 2013, um, and we've known Dennis for hell. I've known him for 25 years uh, since the uh, the Magic. Uh, came to Orlando, and man, he was—he's always been a phenomenal fan. So I was pretty excited when when he won. Um, I'm also glad that I don't choose any of the the winners. Uh, all of the winners are selected by a, a media committee that we have, and they're all very high profile uh, uh, media personalities that we keep anonymous, uh, so that uh, fans <laughs> aren't uh, badgering them and. And trying to rally their uh, their interest, but um, they've done a really good job of selecting the winners over the last couple of years. I definitely got a, a super a UCF super fan that could uh, that could definitely be nominated. It's not me. All I have is a ridiculous jersey collection of, of UCS stuff. I wouldn't count myself as a super fan though. But I do have one. How would I well, be able to to try and nominate someone on our website on the on the what a fan. Uh, page uh, www.whatafanshow.com or whatafan.com uh, will take you to the same place. Uh, under the What a Fan Awards page, you'll see a, a nomination submission uh, button, and and have them click on that button and fill out that information uh, and in detail because it represents. Uh, uh, about 80% of the uh, of the judging for for the media, um, and uh, we'll review that. My team will re- will review the the form, and and then we'll contact him if he is uh, elected to be nominated. I just look. I actually loaded the web page right right when you gave me the the site. First thing that pops up: guy who lives in the home, the city right next to me, Dick Vitale. Uh, so I'm already seeing a nice Florida flair. Got to add a 
a little more Florida power to it. Maybe even nominate myself for the ridiculous number of sports jerseys I own. Uh, Nick will tell you about <laughs> the closet. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and you know something, and I want to touch on just how awesome this award show is. You know, we hand out uh, uh, 12 uh, awards. We uh, we added uh, a, a children's category this year, which we're really excited about, uh, ages 4 to 12. And and one of the big awards for the, the uh, award show is called the American Sports Icon Award. And, and it really does represent what it sounds like. It is it is a, a person that, you know, when you talk about their particular area of sports, uh, in Dickie B's case, it's, it's college basketball. There's no way you can have a discussion about college basketball and Dick Vitale not be part of that discussion. Uh, he is an American icon, and, and he was our first winner. Um, and last year's winner was Muhammad Ali. Uh, and uh, I, I'm, I'm sure no, everyone understands and recognizes Wait, how, how powerful that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you don't know Muhammad Ali, uh, you've been living under a rock. <laughs> Understatement of the year. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, you're right about Dick Vitale being the epitome of college basketball. I mean, he pretty much is synonymous with it. Uh, but I think what makes him even bigger is all the stuff he does with the Jimmy V Foundation. They had the huge Dick Vitale gala just last week, uh, not far from from where I live. Uh, so um, yeah, I, I think it's great that that you're able to use you know some of these big names, him, Ali, a, as I, almost like poster childs. You know, this is a great example of of the super fan. You know, it doesn't have to be a regular person; it could be anyone. Anyone can be a super fan. Uh, but exactly I, I like right. I like how you're doing it. Well, the other the other thing I'd like to to touch on is is you know as as we have worked with all of these fans uh, around the world, you know we find that they're really compassionate people as well. They're extremely active in their communities. They they align themselves with causes that that make a difference. Uh, in people's lives, uh, we in 2013 started a campaign called Fans Against Child Abuse, and it, we're so excited about it. Uh, we have galvanized a, a, a number of fans across the country, and we've created banners for them, and um, we, we provide these banners for them for free, uh, and they take them to their sporting events. Our our mission is to increase the dialogue to get people talking about this issue because we can't fix an issue if we're not willing to talk about that issue. And and some of the super fans around the country are able to to garner media attention to get people talking about it, and that's exactly what's happened. We've got them in 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 uh, France. We've got them in uh, London. Uh, as a matter of fact, the, the two winners that uh, uh, the France woman won for uh, the NHL award, which is amazing. She's in France, but she's a Philadelphia Flyers fanatic. And uh, our London NFL fan of the year uh, is an Oakland Raiders fan and actually travels to the United States 
six times a year to go to Raider home games, uh, which we thought was just amazing. Uh, but these fans are, are on board with us, helping us to, to get rid of this issue of child abuse and, and bring more attention to it so that we can, uh, we can, we can end it. So they're, they're not just fanatics and crazy people that dress up and paint up and, and, and you know, take their shirts off and dance around in, in nutty ways. They're, they're pretty amazing individuals that, that just have a passion for sports um uh, and uh and they're putting their 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 crazy to work uh through through different causes so we're we're it's it's a labor of love man this is a great uh deal that we do it, it it's something i love i'm a freak of a fan uh myself and uh my poor lady she's i think if i turn on ESPN one more day she might just shoot me <laughs> you know we can use another UCF fan. We can always use another season ticket holder. Just, just saying. Yeah, well, you, you know what? I, I, I'll probably be there. <laughs> oh, I'll be there too. Nick, why don't you take now, us home? Now, Lowell, you have a pretty amazing staff, and one of the people that happens to be on your staff is the lovely, talented Pamela Michelle, who happens to be a very good friend of mine. And when Pam, you know, approached me about bringing you, you know, bringing you on the show, I was like, okay, um, I don't know if I'm like the good, the perfect outlet for it, but I have to say, this was an awesome conversation. Uh, I do have someone that I will nominate, you know, on your website, and he happens to be a Green Bay Packer fan. He actually was a guest on my show uh, not too long ago. His name is Steve, the owner, Tate. And, you know, I, what do you call it, there's a guy that he was actually up for the Packer fan Hall of Fame and took part in the ceremony. He was one of the five finalists out of, like, tens of thousands of nominees. So I think that would be someone worthy of being part of the uh, Water Fan Award Ceremony, hopefully not in down the road. Why don't you let the people know exactly when the conference is and, you know, what to expect from Water Fan in the not-too-distant future? Well, well, a, a couple of things. You are you are absolutely correct about about Pam. Uh, Pam is is just an amazing human being. Uh, she, she is is so talented. We we had the pleasure of meeting Pam in 2003 when she came down. Um, she was so enthusiastic and and just. Amazing, and the entire time that she was down here, she she kept talking to us about what we were doing, and and she was very excited about it. And and we have stayed in touch with each other. And ultimately, you're right; she is now part of our team, and and uh, and, and much more than that. She is a she's a a family member. She's a sweetheart. Um, Steve, the owner, Kate, we are actually familiar with. Uh, Steve was nominated in 2013. Uh, and uh, uh, quite frankly, I, I would really like to, to re-nominate him because not only is he an outstanding Packers fan, but he's, he's a great guy. 
uh, a really good guy. Like him a lot. So uh, I'm excited to, uh, that that uh, you're gonna you're gonna nominate him again because I think he deserves it. And I think he's got a good shot of, of, of winning it. Um, the conference is uh, September third uh, through the seventh. Uh, here in Orlando uh, uh, on International Drive at the Rosen. Um, the award show is held uh, every Sunday, uh, September 6th this year. Um, and as I mentioned, we'll be filming the, uh, the award show this year. So we're really excited about it. We've made a lot of changes this year with the conference and the award show uh, because, as I mentioned, we're tweaking, and we're going to continue to tweak until we we get it right. And and these types of of opportunities, and I and I can't thank you enough for for allowing us this platform that that you're giving us to talk about what we're doing and share with your listeners uh, about what a fan. I, I am grateful. I really am grateful. And we're looking to do more with with people like you and, and, and your platform to increase the amount of nominations that we can get. There's there's no reason that we can't do contests through through your program, and I and I hope that we can talk about that in uh, in the very near future. So thank you so much uh, for for what you've done for us tonight. Well. I will put it out there to your live on air and say if you ever need a platform to come on and talk about the conference and talk about what a fan, I will be that podcast for you. I have no qualms doing so. I think what you are doing is absolutely awesome. Uh, you know, you have an amazing staff, especially Pam. And I, what do you call, I will beat the drum for what a fan, if needed, when called upon, whatever you need done, I, I'll, I'll do it for you. So you can put me, you can write me up, sign me up, do whatever you need to do. But Nick, you should cover the event. Cover the event. You know, that actually does sound like a very good idea, Drew. I'm glad you were going that way. And uh, if that- I'll... If that, that's something I definitely would like to talk to Lola and Pam about. If uh, what do you call? I would love that. Although, although I will say this right now, I, I think he's listening. Uh, Andrew Fishfane will probably have to have. We're probably going to have to have a dog collar match because between me and him, there's a lovely lady in the middle of everything, and Pam because Pam is a co-host with with Fish. I don't know if I'm what do you call if I'm going to be stepping on some toes there, but it, it, this is all in jest, by the way. I know Pam's well, right. but um, well, well, but I will say this. I will say no. I will say this though. What do you call it? If this is something that definitely needs, this is something that definitely needs to be covered. Whether it's by the four-letter networks, the three-letter networks, a small guy like me, what a fan needs to be covered you know, all across the board. It's a worldwide phenomenon that's going to break anytime soon. And Lowell, I'll tell you, I'm in your corner. Whatever you need, sir, I'm there. Well, I really appreciate it. And uh, and, and I think we should talk about that. And, and, and you mentioned another one of our family members, Fish. Fish is my guy. 
you know, Fish is another great guy. Fish. Him and him and Stan are just they're they're, they're the one two punch, aren't they? Just great people. Yeah, they are. They really are. Solo, thank you so much for joining me this evening. I definitely will have you back on in the not too distant future. You know, to uh, continue uh, the what a fan, uh, the what a fan. I, I was about to say revival. That wasn't a good. That, it's ne- never been a revival. It's been around. <laughs> But uh, what do you call? But when you go to the sports conference, it feels like a revival because, from what I understand, it's really a great time. Thank you so much, and hope to talk to you soon. Thank you, thank you, guys. Really appreciate it. Have a great night. All right, bye bye. That was Lola Moore, the CEO of What a Fan. Oh my God, what did I just get myself into? And I, I guarantee you, Pamela Michelle, if you're listening out there right now, you're probably hysterical laughing because I think I just shot myself in the foot. No, I'm joking. But anyway, we're going to the home stretch right now. What better person to bring in the home stretch than the host of one of the better talk shows that I've listened to on Talk Zone Sports? It's aptly named Sports and Torts. He's a former attorney. Now he's a talk show host. And his dream was to become a sports talk show host. I mean, and when you listen to him, you know that mind of his is absolutely racing with enough information that, you know, could probably fill an encyclopedia tenfold. And he also has just came out with a book not too long ago in April of 2015 called Talking Football, Hall of Famers Remembrances, Volume 1. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, I'd like you to bring on the co-host of Sports and Toast and the co-author of that said book, David Spada. David, how are you tonight? Good. Thank you for having me on tonight. I was just watching the Hawks game. Well, at least there was one sporting event that was uh, actually a really exciting game. Uh, we're not going to get into the other one, but uh, what do you, but uh, what do you? So, what made you decide to get into the sports talk realm after being a very successful attorney? Uh, how did sports and torts come about? <clears throat> I had a show before called Barely Legal with former Chicago Bear Robin Earl. Robin was a client of mine at one time, and I knew Mike North from my time advertising on The Score, who used to be on The Score. So Mike had started his own radio show, uh, podcast, and I talked to Mike. I go, I want to start a sports show. So he goes, okay. Who are you going to do with? I said, Robin Earl. He goes, okay. So then I started the show with Robin, and – I thought, okay, a former Bear player could get these guys no problem, famers, great players. And after the first show, I go, Robin, who do we have this week? He goes, oh, I thought you were going to book someone. I go, Robin, I'm a lawyer. What do I know about booking people? And then it just sort of took off. We had our first Hall of Famer, Ted Hendricks, and I brought on Elliot uh, Harris as a co-host along with Robin like two years into the show. And Elliot and I decided, you know what, let's just concentrate on – these Hall of Fame athletes, by being on the Internet, we'll have more time to do what we want with these guys. We're not tied down by these segments with traditional radio, and it just started to take off. We interviewed 120 Pro Football Hall of Famers. We've interviewed 196 total Hall of Famers during our four and a half years doing sports and torts, and it's just been fun. These guys just love telling their stories. And how did – when you did sports and torts, 
the the book I when you mentioned you know interviewing all these Hall of Famers. Obviously, this is only volume one. How many volumes do you think will be coming out? Because it seems to me that this is something that can go on for a very long time, especially when you get stories from some of the greatest football players of all time. There's going to be two other volumes, so a total of three on the Football Hall of Famers. Uh, volume two will probably have about 49, 50. Volume three will have the rest. And we broke it down by age group. These are the oldest 29. And we could go basketball. I think we've got like 36 basketball Hall of Famers. And we've decided to go college football coaches. I think we've got 16 of them. And then uh, baseball, we probably got another 20, 25. So it could keep going. I mean, these guys just love telling their stories here. Now, I want to get to what do you call? I want to go into the legal aspect on something because uh, earlier today, to uh, actually earlier this week, um, North Carolina were the North Carolina Tar Heels were hit with the uh, ever dreaded notice of sanctions for the uh, academic fraud that's been spoken about for the last. Uh, a couple of years now, and it, what do you call it, the evidence that was brought together by the NCAA was obviously very, very damning. And um, as an attorney, how would you go about representing North Carolina in anything regarding the NCAA? Because we all know how investigations with the NCAA goes. They either have a lot of teeth, and the NCA will give you a slap on the wrist, or there is a lot of circumstantial evidence, and the NCA will almost throw the death penalty at you. Very inconsistent. So, as an attorney, how would you combat these notice of allegations? And as a sports talk, and as a sports guy, you know what's you know what's your take on you know what's your take on uh, everything that's going on with the uh, notice of allegations in North Carolina right now the main thing is is the athletic director has to get control of the situation and talk to the coaches the assistant coaches if you can the former players the current players and see what's going on and then there's probably a little a little piece to the story where there's a little truth and what he's got to do is basically go to the NCAA and try to work out some kind of deal because it seems like with these prior teams who have gotten allegations against them, the ones that cooperate with the NCAA usually have slaps on the wrist. When you start hiding stuff, that's when you run into problems and they drop the proverbial hammer on you, which you don't want. And, again, the NCAA doesn't want to take one of their top college basketball programs and kill it because, again, North Carolina is one of the top five programs out there. So I think what they're going to do is try to work something out here where North Carolina will say, yeah, there's some issues here. What we're doing is we're trying to work to fix it again, basically self-police themselves, and the NCAA tends to like that. Drew, you have anything for Dave? Well, I, I, I'm just thinking to myself when he's mentioning this, and it reminds me of the time that uh, the NCAA got so mad at Alabama they put Cleveland State on probation. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and it's true that that really did happen. Uh, they they got really mad at Alabama for doing something. This is back uh, in the uh, '80s, and, and punished another school more harshly instead because they didn't want to touch a hot property like like Alabama football. 
Uh, I, I'm afraid of this happening again. Uh, me personally, I'd love to see the hammer just absolutely dropped on North Carolina. Uh, I, I, it would warm my heart just to see the, a little justice. But but I think what, what you said is very valid. Uh, there's probably going to be a lot of backdoor dealing uh, to try and work this out. Uh, the evidence is bad, and, and the amount of research that was done in this is, is immense. Uh, so if you were in that position and you were, you know, uh, you know, contracted by, by North Carolina to try and do a deal, uh, what kind of angle would you use to, to try and, uh, steer some sort of, uh, mercy your, your direction? I would basically say, listen, we haven't had any problems over the years. We run a clean program here. <clears throat> we understand what's going on. We're taking this seriously here, but again, these are just a couple of allegations here. These are disgruntled players, this, this, and this, and go through the whole thing. Because the NCAA knows all these schools are doing some more things. I mean, in our book, we talked to Hugh McElhaney, 49er Hall of Famer. In the 50s, he was getting paid by the University of Washington. He admits it. He goes, I was making more money in college than I did my rookie year in the NFL. He goes, I was getting paid by the university. I was getting paid by... <clears throat> the beer companies to do promotions. I mean, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, there were allegations that he was paid money to just turn the lights on at the football stadium. I mean, everybody knows this is going on again, but the NCAA does not like when it becomes public. And what they want to see is these universities do something to stop it. The ones that try to hide it have the problems. Look at SMU. They gave the death penalty in the early 80s. They still haven't come back from that. But again, they played all kinds of games, tried to hide it, but you can't do it. I mean, in this situation, look at Penn State. Penn State had all that going on, and the NCAA had to come down hard on them. But, again, they didn't kill the program. And there were, the allegations against Penn State were a lot worse what was going on in the cover-ups. Yeah, and, and with uh, in, the, in the case of, of Penn State, from what I understand, it was an 11 deal that actually prevented the death penalty from dropping. They were going to drop the death penalty on, on Penn State and, and – Decided, in my opinion, wisely not to. Uh, we forget that you know there's an economy that's attached to college sports now. Uh, local businesses, especially in the small school, uh, small cities like State College. Uh, what happens to all those businesses if there's no no sports? Uh, do you think Chapel Hill could potentially fall in that same trap where, uh, you know, say they they drop the hammer, the the massive hammer? Uh, do you think there could be more negative ramifications like SMU where they just won't recover? Or do you think they have enough clout and can recover within a few years? Oh, they'll recover real quick. Cause just think, think who is the best basketball player of all time that went to North Carolina? Michael Jordan. You think Michael Jordan's going to let them kill his program? He'll do whatever's possible to save that program because he loves North Carolina. Everybody talks about the Bulls and about Charlotte, where he's the owner. He loves Carolina basketball more than that. He has such deep respect for that program. When he played for the Bulls here in Chicago, he wore those Carolina shorts under his uniform every game. So Jordan will do whatever is possible. Look what they did when Dean Smith retired. They had uh, Bill Guntridge take over, and then – they had um, a guy from Notre Dame, Doherty, and then they had some issues, and they weren't doing well. What do they do? They get Roy Williams to come there, take over the program, and he's winning championships. The same thing. It's, again, they'll bring a coach in there to revive the program, 
Again, it's North Carolina basketball. Before Dean Smith, you had Frank McGuire there. They they are going nowhere. Yeah, I, like I agree with UCLA you. Bas- It'll be like killing UCLA basketball. Yeah, and, and well, yeah, and and UCLA wouldn't go anywhere. I, mean, I, I think they're as much of a staple, if not more, than North Carolina historically. Uh, but you allude to UCLA, and, and you kind of allude to to paying players. Uh, I'm just curious, uh, what's your take on the pay-for-play movement that's uh, currently, well, kind of in an in a in-between status uh, as far as, uh, you know, with the NCAA? The problem they're going to run into is, I think, the workers' comp situation. Because now if an athlete gets injured, they can't claim workers' comp. Once you start paying them, they're employees of the university – and they can make comp claims. Think of the amount of injuries that are happening. Every state has their own workers' comp system. So you take a guy in Illinois here, tears his rotator cuff, his surgery. I mean, if he could claim, if he could show that he lost his ability to earn a living, say in baseball, and make millions, he'll have a wage differential claim. And the money will be astronomical that these will cost universities here. Right now, they're not paying comp claims on this. Everybody says, well, they should get paid, they should get paid. They look at what the university's making. The university does not want to start having to pay these athletes besides the salaries and the tuition, the claims that could come out of this. I mean, look at the NFL with these concussion lawsuits. The settlement's close to a billion dollars here. You think the NCAA wants to go that route at workers' comp? Illinois's got the second highest workers' comp prices in the country right now. You bring these athletes in here, I'm telling you, in Illinois, these athletes will be getting big money because every one of them will be claiming when they have an injury, oh, I could have played in the NFL, I could have played in the NBA, and they're going to be getting paid out. I mean, you're looking, and it's not just the major sports. Every single one of them are going to be making those claims because that's the other thing. You have to treat every sport equally. They have equal men's and women's sports then, so you can't just pay the men's basketball, football. You have to pay the women because then you're going to have – questions that they're treating the men different than women you're gonna have all kinds of issues here yeah and, and i like how you went the workers comp direction uh, i'm actually a property and casualty insurance accountant so I, I see workers comp stuff coming through uh so so i understand full well uh of the dangers in which you speak so so the real question is what's the alternative if there needs to be some sort of royalty or something uh, we're already looking at. We're already seeing full cost of attend uh, of attendance, uh, which I guess can be a workaround for pay for play. Uh, they're just getting a stipend instead. Uh, is there any other workaround solution they can use the the schools and the NCAA to to at least give some sort of financial kickback to these student athletes uh, without them being employees? The problem you run into is. The only sports that make money on the college level are the major sports, which are men's, football, and basketball. The other sports are not generating revenue for these universities. And even these major sports, you take the mid-level Division One programs in basketball and the lower ones, they're not making money. I mean, you see the top 20 teams making tens of millions of dollars, but again, the average schools here are not making the money off these sports here. Again, everybody, when you watch TV, you're not watching, like you said, Cleveland State play. You're watching North Carolina in basketball. You're watching UCLA. You're watching Indiana. In football, Alabama, you're watching Texas, those schools. Again, 
you're not watching the lower level schools. And there's over 300 Division One schools in the NCAA in basketball here, and probably I guess the top 50 are probably the only ones making money. Watch watch some of the smaller schools on TV when they have the games on ESPN two, ESPN three. They might have five six thousand fans in the stadiums. They're not filling those things up. It's not Duke, North Carolina, Indiana. Oh, I, I understand. Uh, I, I'm I'm a fan of small schools. My dad went to Division three. Uh, I went to uh, well, I guess you call it little in the athletic sense, uh, but not little in the attendance sense in, in UCF. Uh, so I, I and that's not a school that makes money. Uh, they don't. Um, they're part of that. The have nots, much like you know any of the MAC schools, Conference USA. Uh, so when you, when we're starting, what school was that? US get to, is the University of San Francisco. Uh, no, uh, Central Florida. Oh, okay. Oh, UCF. I thought you said University of uh, San Francisco. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, though I do, I do like how USF is automatically assumed to be University of San Francisco instead of the uh, geographically challenged university over in Tampa. <laughs> Uh, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, you know, friendly rivalry there. Uh, but we're seeing a schism, and, and it kind of goes with this. We're seeing the schism between the haves and the have-nots, in particular division in the FBS, where, where this cost of attendance issue uh, is rising up. Do you see more schools going the way of, like, UAB and starting to cut sports? Because I heard current reports out there saying that even with the new reports out there, UAB is not reinstating football. So do you see that this this money issue is going to start causing other programs to consider cutting or flat-out cutting major sports like football? Yeah, because, I mean, if they're not making money in football, what they could do is not only cut the football program, they would cut a women's program to even it out because they have to have equal men's and women's programs, so it makes it a lot easier. So they knock out the programs that are costing the most money here in these school uh, sports. Think of this. Could you imagine a football team going undefeated in football and the next year not playing? Dropping the that'd program. Be, that'd be insane. Uh, it, you happened. Know, you... it happened. Which pro- which program did that? It was University of San Francisco. They were oh, undefeated right, yes. in the football. And what happened was, at that time, they would not allow – one of the Bulls' black athletes to play in the bowl game, and University of San Francisco refused to play in the bowl game because what ended up happening is their top three players were Ollie Madsen, future Hall of Famer, Toller, who went on to play in the NFL, and they had um, one other player on that team, and they said, we're not going to play without all our players. So Ollie Madsen, <clears throat> and this was the white players. They had Gino Marchetti on that team, Hall of Famer, Bob Sinclair, and they said, we're not playing without Ali Madsen and Toller, and they didn't play in that bowl game. And then the university didn't have the money to keep the program going, and they quit playing football. Marchetti transferred somewhere else, or uh, Sinclair transferred somewhere else to finish his career. Yeah, and, if, and you know, the Dons have largely been, you know, irrelevant in the world of college sports since. Uh, it just shows how the power of football is for, you know, marketing pro, uh, marketing schools you know basketball to a certain extent can can market some like Gonzaga or, or St. Mary's or something uh but football is usually the driving force of, of the notoriety for a a school I mean University of Pacific, you know, Pacific 
canceled their their program when the Big West disappeared from FBS, and now they're kind of a, a who uh, who are they again program out out west. Uh, so it it just shows how the the impact of the sports being cut can really play a role in in the the future earning potential of of some of these programs. And the University of San Francisco had a young guy doing their PR who was probably the PR marketing genius behind the NFL success, and even he couldn't save that program, Pete Rozelle. I didn't know Pete Rozelle was there. That, that, I, I learned something new today. <laughs> Pete Rozelle did their, was in their uh, public relations there for the athletic department. So, I mean, you look at the people on that team. You had Gino Marchetti, Hall of Famer, Ollie Madsen, Hall of Famer, Bob Sinclair, Hall of Famer. Toller was one of their top players. They had um, another offensive lineman who should be in the Hall of Fame. Dick Stanfield was on their team, and Pete Rose was doing their marketing. And, I mean, again, they're doing actually working on a movie about that team. All right, I got, I got one more for you, and I'm going to pass it back to Nick. You've got a who's who of Hall of Fame interviews. Uh, I mean, just, just an amazing list that, that, you know, if you had to pick one – that was your favorite interview. Who would it have been? Which one? In this book, it was Art Donovan. As a kid, I remember watching David Letterman and seeing Art Donovan on there, and I thought the guy was absolutely hysterical. Never saw him play because, I mean, he played in the 50s, early 60s. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, let me see if I can get Art. I figured I had no shot. I got Art originally when I had the original show, and then I said, I want to go more in depth. So I talked to Art two months before he died with Elliot, and Art was hysterical. He was telling all the stories from Letterman and more. I mean, he talked about getting drunk with Julia Child on the show and afterward in a limo, and Julia kind of coming on to him. He <laughs> talked about, he talked about, he goes, the first one was on Johnny Carson. I'm sitting in the room, and he goes, all of a sudden, knocked on my door, and he said, we need uh, some space. Can we have someone else come in your uh, dressing room? He goes, that's fine. I don't care. He goes, I had the person from the San Diego Zoo with all these animals in there. He goes, I'm from New York. I didn't know anything about animals here. I got snakes and monkeys and stuff in this dressing room. I go, this is nuts. But he, I mean, he told about that. He talked about, he goes, this guy comes up to me and said, starts talking to me, telling me how much he enjoyed me and talking about everything. What a great guy. I'm like, I go, who was he? He goes, Walter Cron- Cronkite. He goes, can you imagine Walter Cronkite talking to me? Who am I? Some just football player. But, no, he told the stories, and he invited Ellie and I to go to his country club he owns in Maryland and have some schlitz with him. I go, what? He goes, yeah. He goes, you know, when I die, my buddy wants to cut me open. You know what you're going to find in me? Schlitz and hot dogs. He goes, that's what I've been living on for 80-some years. <laughs> but he, I mean, wow. he's just, he, an, an interesting guy. I mean, absolutely hysterical. I mean, this guy had one story after the other, and – Letterman loved him. He'd have him on every year and to show how loyal and how much Letterman loved him. When he did that commercial with Oprah in the Super Bowl a couple years ago, what jersey was Letterman wearing? Art Donovan's. I'm up to watch that that YouTube clip of yours now. I'm going to have to check that out after the show. Oh, I mean, these guys, it's absolutely great talking to them. The one that scared me was Jim Brown, because I always heard about Jim Brown, how tough he was and mean. I'm like, if I get five minutes of Brown, I'll be shocked. Jim talked to Ellie and I for half an hour and just opened up, talked about his career. And I kept saying, but Jim, what's it like being the greatest football player of all time? 
He goes, it's not about that. He goes, I'm not, I'm not going to say I'm the greatest. I did what I had to do. He talked about that. And he went into basically the career. And talk, we talked to Bobby Mitchell, who was a teammate of his, with the um, Cleveland Browns that got traded to Washington. He was the first black player on the Redskins. And he talked about that. The Redskins were the last team to integrate, and that was right in about 63, 64, the NFL forced it. And he talked about being in Washington at that time and the pressures on him. And this guy went on to be an assistant GM, never got the shot of being a GM. He talked about that, but he said the owner, Jack Kent Cook, had great respect for me, basically always asked for my views and everything. And so you learned about the whole history here with this, what's going on. Len Barney talked to us, he'll be in the second book, about meeting Marvin Gaye and how he got the platinum record for what's going on. He just met Marvin by knocking on his door. He went to Marvin's house, knocked on the door, and said, yeah, uh, Marvin, Len Barney. And Marvin goes to him, Len Barney. There's a guy in the Lions, Len Barney. He goes, I'm him. They developed a friendship, and they started doing deals together. And he talked about Marvin wanting to be a football player and went to training camp with him. And then the owner said, you can't let him practice. He'll get killed there. I mean, the stories. And even the non-Hall of Famers, you get stories. We talked to Rosie Greer. And he brought in about the Bobby Kennedy Association, how he wrestled the gun away from Sirhan Sirhan. And my kids are listening. They were doing a project for grade school, and they are listening to this, and he went through the whole thing, wrestling the gun away, how um, George Plimpton was going to get shot if he wrestled the gun away, and then um, Rayford Johnson put the gun in his pocket, and there was no Secret Service to be found. Finally, the Secret Service said, where's the gun at? And they go, Rayford's got it in his pocket. All right, Nick, you know, take us home. You know, David, when I asked you to be on the show tonight, you know, I, I was expecting the intellectual to definitely come out. And, sir, I have to say, man, what do you call it? I have to say, you were one of my, one of our, I should say, best guests that we've had on this show since since the uh, since I started it back in December. And kudos to you. I mean, it, you the show that you have on Talk Zone is top-notch, and tonight just shows why it is top-notch. And I want to thank you for joining us this evening. Why don't you plug the book one more time and let the people know about your show on TalkZone and where they can find you on social media. The book is called Talking Football, Hall of Famers Remembrances. It's on Amazon and Kindle. Uh, the show is called Sports and Torts. It's on TalkZone.com. All the episodes are on there. It's not just audio. We also put pictures. There's video of it. And we've been doing the show for four and a half years. We were up for podcast of the year a couple of years ago. And so I'd appreciate everyone buying the book, the first, second, third, any future ones. And I still want to get my favorite football players interview. I can't get it. It's Dan Marino. So if anyone can help me with Marino, let me know. Give Dan a call. I've talked to Mark Clayton, Dwight Stevenson, Richmond Webb. He said, get me Marino. And they go, yeah, we'll work on it. We'll work on it. I said, you know what? If he's not going to be my favorite player much longer. I'm going to well, leave that one alone. Yeah, what do you call? It? We we don't have that type of poll, but what do you call? It? I may know someone that that deals with the with the Dolphins organization that maybe can pull a string, but I can't guarantee that. But thank you so much for joining us tonight. We'll definitely have you thank back you. on in the in the future. Sounds great. Good luck with your show. Thank you. Have a good night. Thank you, you too. And that was David Spada from Sports and Torts. Another great interview. So, good sir, before we before we depart, 
We're probably going to run out of time, live time, ladies and gentlemen, but we're going to go into overtime, so you'll be able to listen to this whole podcast when it's up and running tomorrow. So in case uh, we get cut off, don't worry about it. The show will still be going, and uh, that'll be that. So, good sir, after all this time on the sidelines and, you know, wondering when you were going to get back in the game, how did it feel? Was the rust that noticeable? Actually, no. It did. I didn't notice anything at all. I mean, it was like you've been doing this for a while, and you were lying to me, saying that you. Uh, I've been on the sidelines for so long. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I did have one guest moment uh, once in like February, and that was it. So I, I guess there was a little bit somewhere, uh, if that counts. Well, I got to say, Drew, what do you call having you back on air is really, really cool. And, you know, there was a reason why our show on TSCRN was always a lot of fun and always, you know, always, uh, you know, had everybody on their edge of the seat because they never knew what was going to be coming. And when I created the uh, Mad Scientist Sports Lab, and yes, for those that are listening, uh, I did ask Drew in the beginning if he wanted to, if he wanted to come back on. And at the time, you know, he had a lot of stuff going on and everything. And I was like, all right, well, you know, there'll always be an open invite. And I got the text message. I want to get back in the game. And with it, it, it took me two seconds of hesitation to say, uh, when can you start? <laughs> so this is what do you call this. This show was a lot of fun. This show was very, what do you call, very informative. And the guests that we had tonight were nothing short of top notch. And... It was made that much better, you know, knowing that I had an old friend, an old co-host, an old new co-host, I should say. And uh, I want to say thank you, good sir, for coming back into the game. Well, thank you for for having me, Nick. You know, you and I, uh, with TSCRN, and, and, and times have changed, situations have changed, and... This is something that never changed, is the fact that you and I have always worked well together, have been friends, and so it feels like it feels like I never left. I know, it's weird. It's weird. And we even had that one blog talk radio moment like we normally do, where the mute button goes on, and the next thing you know, it's like, wait a minute, he's talking, and yet it's dead air. Shocker. Anyway, my name is Dick Vicarelli. I am the bad scientist of sports. You can find me on Twitter at NAF underscore FSW Sports. You can listen to the show live every Saturday night from 10 p.m. to midnight. But then again, if you can't hear it live, you can download the podcast right here on Fantasy Sports Warehouse Radio, my home. Or you could find me syndicated on many other networks like I-95 Sports and Entertainment Network, War Room Sports, Happy Hour Network, the Arena Sports Network, Die Hard Sports Radio, Sports for Fans, Ace Network, The Sports Crave, 
Nuts and Bolts Sports, Late Night Sports Radio, and the Asylum Sports Network. Drew, take us home. Uh, before I before I start, uh, Nick, do you keep a piece of paper in front of you to remember all those? Absolutely, because there's no way I can remember this. What do you call it, by heart? <laughs> <laughs> but but that's a good problem to have. The fact that you know the show is so successful that you need to keep a sheet of paper with all these networks on it that you simulcast on. But without further ado, my name's Andrew Glukov. He's the mad scientist. I'm just mad. Uh, you can catch me on Twitter at StatBoyDrew. That's really it. I, I haven't been doing all that much this year. I've got other stuff going on. So I have nothing else better to, to bring to the table, Nick. Uh, just, just a Twitter handle. Well, not only that, but as I stated in the beginning of the show, in case I happen not to be around, you know, to do my show on Saturday nights, I do have a new number one apprentice, and you just heard him tonight. And I know if I'm not around, the show will be in extremely very good hands. So with that being said, it's time to, you know, tone down the beakers. It's time to erase the chalkboard and get ready for some new experiments next week. Because, ladies and gentlemen, the lab now is officially closed. Have a good night. We will be back next Saturday night, 10 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, class dismissed. Good night, ladies and gentlemen. Today's podcast belongs to the Ace Network, Alice Cardelli Entertainment Network. It may not be reused, redistributed without permission from Alice Cardinelli himself. This podcast was recorded live from the Springfield, Massachusetts studio and Ace Network.